What's up, everybody? This is Matt, a.k.a. Cut Corners. And for this episode of Serato's Unscripted series, I got to sit down with Jasmine Solano. It was great to get her perspective on many different topics from Caribbean music and the rise of Afrobeats, Afropop, throwing your own parties versus playing other people's parties with her party, Electric Punani, and her project with Malo X, her MTV show and traveling around the world, all her takeaways on what it means to be a creative person, and about her use of social media to bring about awareness of important issues such as unity in color and sustainable Sundays. Check out this episode and hear how she's become one of the most influential DJs in America right now. Well, yeah, Jasmine, welcome to Unscripted, the Serato podcast. Thank you for coming today. I love any excuse to come to Serato headquarters in LA, so thank you for having me. Um, well, you're welcome. And and you're rec- how long have you been in LA now? Uh, secretly, three years. <laughs> <laughs> Why secret? I don't. I don't advertise it. I I just secretly moved because, you know, so much of my life is in New York. And so I'm back and forth and I'm truly bi-coastal. And I think um, when you're from the East Coast of the U.S. and uh, you finally make that move to the West Coast, there's this there's this identity uh, that you don't want to lose. You don't want people to forget that you're an East Coaster. Um, you want people to still know that you're in the mix and you're in the scene. And also, as you come to the West Coast, you don't want... Uh, everyday people that you meet to forget that you're from the East Coast. You know what I mean? And you're not going to take certain, uh, you know, you're not going to accept certain behaviors and <laughs> language. So, yeah, so I say secretly because I also was just trying to figure out if I was going to stay here permanently. And now I absolutely love it. And there's something extremely special about LA and especially people that are from LA, natives of LA and uh, the cultures that have arisen from here and the history and the political struggle. Um, Of course, the weather and the landscape and all that too, but I love LA. So those are the positives? There's there's so many positives, you know, and LA is, LA is going through a renaissance, at least from what I see. And there's also a lot of migration from New York. So, you know, half of my homies are all out here and we're, we're hustling just as hard as we, we were in New York, but with the sunshine and with some mountains and a healthier lifestyle and a better quality of life, in my opinion, um, especially with the way New York is turning into a financial capital and the ability for artists to live and thrive um, normally, functionally, is not as possible as it was 10 years ago. And so LA, even though prices uh, have increased so much in the past like five years here, there's still pockets where artists can cultivate their career and live affordably and still be in the mix. Mm. And so I support that. You're talking a lot about a migration from the East Coast to LA. Do you think there's kind of like a music, it's becoming a music center in much the same way New York was maybe in the 90s? I think 400%. Everyone in music is here. Mm. We're all here. We all have home studios. We're all at each other's home studios, you know? And if it's not your home studio, there's a place that you can easily access. Mm. That um, the way the Patch House now has Base Camp, Serato Headquarters, there's there's different places. And there's so many actual studios that you can use and rent. And I think that with 
um, music labels, I think with film and Hollywood, with everyone kind of cross-promoting their brand into different entertainment avenues, this is the place to really do it. Mm. It seems like there's a lot of a lot, lot of opportunity and people are coming out here to collaborate or, or find, you know, people to collaborate with and make music and get their music yeah. heard. Yeah, 100%. So in saying that, so you you lived in New York, and you're not from. You born in New York? Born in Philly. Born in Philly. What up, <laughs> 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 um, And so, when did you move from Philly to New York? Oh man. <clears throat> well, um, first I moved from Philly to Boston, and I went to Emerson College, and I started DJing on the radio there when I was 17. Mm. This is where DJing really kind of came about. However. When I was like 15, 16, I became very obsessed with turntablism and I was getting Qbert DVDs and Mixmaster Mike DVDs and watching DMC championships and just being like, oh my God, if I was ever a DJ, I'd be the coolest person in the world. And my homie who ran like the underground hip hop section at the local record store, um, he was the one that I bought my turntables from. I worked for a year doing coat check to... uh, to buy um, my turntables. And then I interned at Turntable Lab for, uh, what was it, six months to a year to get my first Serato box discounted. (laughs) (laughs) So this is like, you know, this is 2006, seven, eight, around there. So, um, So yeah, so Boston was really my breeding ground for cultivating my early DJ career, especially because I was on the radio and radio just taught me so much as a host, um, as someone that could connect with mass amounts of people and how and what the, those avenues were, whether it's behind the microphone, whether it's behind a camera, whether it's on stage. And so uh, Boston and then Brooklyn after mm. that. So being from Philly, was there a DJ influence from Philly that you you brought to, to Boston or... You know, it's uh, it's funny we talk about this because I'm starting a new um, monthly in L.A. called On and On. And I'm starting it with Badi, um, who's from The Wave, and it's a tribute to Neo Soul. Okay. And we're partnering with OK Player, um, and it's really an ode to my upbringing and to his upbringing as well. Because at that time, the OK Player movement was at its height. Neo Soul was... Um, it was like it was the most influential genre of my life at that time. Music Soul Child had just dropped his first album. Jill Scott dropped her first album. The Roots were called the Square Roots. Like Black Lily was a thing. The Jazzy Fat Nasties. A clothing line called Ropa Dope, and I was like the first one to go get that hoodie. I mean, I was so, uh, and I was, I was a bit of an activist as well. And so this conscious wave of hip hop and R and B just took me over as a teenager, and. That's kind of the vibe I've always brought in my life, whether I've delved into different genres or represented different scenes. There's always something super soulful, I hope, that I, that I express. And, and I think also being from Philly, there's no way that you can't be soulful. Like, mm. it's in the water, you know, the water. <laughs> um, you, and my mom is from Philly, and my grandfather's from South Philly, and my grandmom is from the Bronx. So... Um, I just think uh, it was a, you know, I, I just think I was birthed with soul and, and Philly just cultivates that. There's a, there's a level of rawness that it still has and especially as a teenager and sneaking into clubs and 
just trying to be where the music was. Um, that that genre and that time period was so influential. But I think I bought like a instrumental DJ Scratch CD. I was a little backpacker, you know. I was like a baby backpacker, but um, but yeah, the main DJs at that time were like Cubert and Mixmaster Mike that I would follow. This is like right before A Track. I think won his first DMC championship, and it was a time, man, because it was still. I remember the the documentary Scratch had come out, and that I mean that was it. That changed my life. And um, Emerson College is so fucking liberal. I can curse, right? Yeah. So fucking liberal. I, I, I love telling this story because I, I can't believe it at this point. But I walked in as a 17-year-old and I was like, um, my major, I'm going to design my own major. And it's going to be called the Music Activism Quest. And they were like, okay. So for the first two years, like that's what it read on my paperwork. And I was like, why would you let a 17-year-old name her major like a mixtape? Like, can we get some a little bit of professionalism here? But anyway, it 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 uh, eventually um, evolved into a degree in music production and social marketing. But it really was this um, combination of audio marketing and politics. Um, I feel like I've I've gone off on a tangent. It's great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because this is this is a, Emerson's in Boston. Yeah. Okay, and mm-hmm. that's also where you had your your radio show. Yes. So was the radio show part of your major or? separate from that, that was company. separate and that was my whole damn life the radio show oh the radio station yeah i eventually became the program director i managed like 100 students we had 25 different genres of shows at that time we were the number one college radio station in the country so we were competing with all the major jamming 94.5 and we competed um and it taught me oh man it taught me everything and we had artists come in every week that were like like our reggae show alone, rockers had we would have like Cableton and Baby Sham and Damian Marley, wow. and then um, for hip hop we would have you know everyone from Def Jux and um, a lot of like underground hip hop artists that wanted to be you know wanted to be exposed and and have a larger market. And then I remember my show. I had an R and B and soul show. We had Eric Benet, Jaguar Wright, Guapale. Wow. Um, the Platinum Pie Pipers. So we had major people coming in because it was a really influential platform. And man, did that shape me yeah. for my whole life. And so you were hosting and DJing and programming, directing and everything? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I give this example of what I did when I was like 16 in my hometown in Pennsylvania. I used to put on this event called the Hip Hop Political Fusion. And, uh, <laughs> and I would... I would convince the local courthouse to like give me their courtyard for a night and I would have like a punk rock band and I'd have hip hop conscious MCs and I'd have green party representatives. And then I would do this like choreographed dance to a Mr. Lift song called Home of the Brave, which was like super political. And then I'd have a PowerPoint presentation behind me that I made protesting the war in Iraq. Um, And I say that example because that's literally like what I still do. I, I kind of wear all the hats and I really, uh, I mean, I, I would say I'm OCD and a, and a control freak, but hopefully in the best way possible that an artist can be, because I just like to um, really curate the entire experience from top to bottom. And I have really strong visions about what that looks like and what it sounds like. And then I'm also a creative. And so whether it's dance, DJ, rapping, something, it's always come out in, in, in a expressive form 
uh, to help get my point across. So I'm always an artist and a producer. Let's let's talk about that for a second. I think um, one of the things that I I really like to touch on is is creative vision. I think that um, you know a lot of people will say I want to be a DJ, and and they just go I want to you know what does that mean exactly? Do they just want to play in nightclubs? Do they just want to you know DJ for an artist? Do they want to play on the radio? Um, and and you you can if you have a vision, you can really create whatever that is in your mind. And I think that that's something that I'd I'd love to hear you you talk about. You have a clear. You said you have a very clear vision. Mm-hmm. Does that, is that something that just came naturally to you, or did you have to kind of work to find it, or is that influence from your parents? Or I think I I came out just like a bossy ass bitch, <laughs> and my mom will attest to that. I think I just started bossing people around and was like, nope, this toy is gonna go here, and this this Barbie Jeep is here because this is my movie. You know, um, I don't I don't know where that comes from. If we want to talk about past lives and stuff, maybe maybe there's something there. But uh, I've always just been extremely um, inspired and picky. And so if I'm inspired, I'm very picky about where that inspiration goes. Um, But I think that there's kind of two things that you touched on, which is. Man, there's creative vision. Once you've kind of established your role as an artist and then there's how do I make this dream of getting into this industry come true Mm. right and when someone says I want to be a DJ those are awesome questions actually that you just asked like do you see yourself on stage for an artist do you see yourself in the nightclubs five nights a week do you see yourself at festivals like what is it what is it that inspires you about it or what's the root of it like let's be honest like do you do you see yourself as just being a socialite influencer that can make some extra money or do you see yourself you know practicing in your basement alone every single night for three hours because you just want to get so good like what what is it that sparks that creativity in you and then um i think once you determine that and figure out which way you want to step into the industry then you can go into your creative vision like okay well what do you want to represent? What's in your soul? You know, what genres do you navigate to naturally? Like, what is it that you want to say beyond DJing? Because at this point, everyone can be a DJ and the amount of DJs have probably quadrupled in the past 10 years alone, you know, let alone 20 years. Like, that's a whole nother conversation that all the old heads will have a lot to say. Mm. So now it's it, you can't even just be a dj it's like there has to be a whole mission behind it or are you a producer as well or are you attached to a clothing brand that wants to also you know what i mean like it's um there's so many ways to use djing as a vehicle and and i guess it's about deciding which avenue you want to take which path you want to take and then what does your creative vision really represent and when you kind of have those two ideas down, you can learn what your next chess move is and how you want to navigate and which scene do you want to start showing up to, which parties, like which which artists or agencies do you want to just make yourself available to, um, which other DJs do you want to shadow, like who do you want to take some classes, you know, at like Dubspot or Scratch Academy and stuff like that. Um, and all of those accessibilities really were not there like 15 years ago, yeah, you know, um, when I was really inspired as like a teenager. And so now the possibilities are truly endless and the technology is so much easier, you know? And I think that 
when we talk about culture, and again, I'm, I'm going on another tangent, but you know, this it's is what happens <laughs> when we talk about music. Um, I think that when we talk about culture and technology, right? I love having like this debate with the homies because um, whenever we advance technologically, um, how much of the, of the culture and the craftsmanship do we lose? And how much um, accessibility do we provide mm. for everyone? You know, where- That's a really good point. And it's, it could be a long debate, you know? Um, and I think that, I think that with anything like, and, and we're, like, that's even the photography industry. Everyone's a photographer now because of your phone. And, um, but with DJing, there's obviously so many more elements, just like a photographer would say, there's so many more elements to capturing the shot to working a crowd, to learning a crowd, um, muscle memory, encyclopedia brain of of decades and genres of music. Um, did I answer the question? Yeah, definitely. I think we, we were just touching on, um, yeah, the, the music technology. And I think we were just about to get to a place where I was gonna, I wanted to ask you about, you know, understanding an encyclopedia knowledge of genres but those genres also, you, you need to understand the nuance between them, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think, you know, you just were talking about how you really, you grew up and you really loved Neo Soul and, you know, the OK Player and a lot of like Jazzy Fat Nasties, mm -hmm. the Philly Soul. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, they were, Philly was like ground zero for a lot Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, and then to, to understand how to play that music and what that music really is uh, versus just soul music or mm. just r&b mm. there is a difference and and i think um being a dj right it's it's kind of a responsibility to understand do i play dancehall like this do i play house music like a hip-hop record or not you know and how do i play hip-hop in new york versus hip-hop in bay area or something mm -hmm. there, there's yeah. a lot of differences i often say that i'm a music anthropologist and i think that a good dj is a culture and music anthropologist because it's the study of people, it's the study of subcultures, it's the study of rebellion, it's the study of migration, it's the study of humanity. Mm. Because music normally comes out of some wild shit happening or the organization of tribal communities. And so when that really interests you, you're gonna look for the connection and everything. You're gonna um, you're gonna look for the nuance, and you're gonna look for the history, and you're gonna want to step into another city and be like, well, why is it like this, and and what is it about this? You know, when you go and DJ in Japan at a dancehall party, and like Mighty Crown is kicking your ass and winning every sound clash, and you know, and and you're you're wondering how dancehall culture migrated, you know, to Asia, and this is all music and culture anthropology. Mm. And um, if you respect it enough and you study it in a way that's respectful, that's what makes you a great DJ. Do you think, um, do you think that's something that you've learned or, or do you think that's something that's, that music is teaching younger people or people that maybe didn't understand the nuance of those cultural movements? For example, you know, I grew up in New Zealand Mm -hmm. And I love rap music. <laughs> right. But now I've learned a lot about, you know, American, you know, civil rights movement, mm -hmm. you know, socioeconomic politics and things like that. Yeah. Because of my love for that music. Right. Uh, which I've always thought was a really a great gift and a great thing that 
I got from learning about yeah. this music I liked. I didn't, I couldn't articulate why I liked it. Right. But by liking it and, you know, wanting to understand it more and not understanding even like the abonics. Yeah. Or the language. Yeah. Why, what, what, was, what does that mean, you know? And having that being broken down was really enlightening. Yeah. Um, I th- do you think that, that that's one of the, the things that's continuing to be passed on from different genres? I think that the diaspora coming together and being accessible to everyone via the internet, I think it's actually shifting people and they don't, they, without them even knowing it. I think it takes a real nerdy person like myself and you to analyze it in this way mm. <laughs> and really break down cultural norms and um, and talk about music theory and all the shit that I love to talk about. But I think the power of music is that all of that is happening with just bringing different people together in one room or having people listen to a different genre that's from another country that they never that they never heard about, you know. Um, I think it continues to do that, yes, just off of the magic and the science of music itself. And if we look at if we look at Afrobeats, right, and how the explosion of popularity in Afrobeats in America, and we look at the connection from Caribbean music to Afrobeats to ballet funk and we're looking you know what I mean like this this kind of indigenous drum pattern and how it's hypnotic and it's infectious and it's contagious and it makes people happy Mm. um and I think that without people really knowing oh where did that necessarily come from they're like okay this reggaeton kind of sounds like um this afrobeat song or like this calypso song kind of sounds like an afrobeat song and and with the popularity of that getting into like top 40 mainstream music, I think it's infecting more people that maybe would not have been so open to different music genres and styles from other countries. So it's, it's kind of the vehicle, you Mm. know what I mean? It's, it's the, it's the universal language. It's, it's like the secret method to bring people together. And that's why I've devoted my life to it, you know, from a young age. Yeah. I think it's also interesting. You just talked about, you know, Afrobeats, You've talked about dance hall. You talk about reggaeton, and basically my favorite things to DJ. <laughs> they are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, R and B is in there too. Yeah, um, but my music duo with Mellow X is called Electric Punani. You know, and that's for a reason. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and so that's what you guys focus on for Electric Punani. Those main main genres there. Well, it's funny. We we started in two thousand and eight. So we've been a duo for a real long time. And back in New York City at that time, Mello had gone to a party at 205 Christie Street where somebody was playing dance hall downstairs and somebody was playing electro upstairs. And he had this like, you know, epiphany moment in the middle of the stairway. And he swore that like the beats matched up, like the tempo matched. And, you know, he's Jamaican. So um, he grew up listening to, to reggae and dance hall. However, at the time... I mean, and and continue to today, I'm like the reggae dance hall head, you know? And so he came to me like, hey, I want to start this like reggae electro party. And like, you do the reggae and I do like the electro, (laughs) even though he's the Jamaican one. (laughs) Um, But I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then we were thinking of a name and we we thought of like electro poom poom. That was like the runner up. And then electric panani. And it was like, you know, the the seas parted. It was like a golden moment in, in our life. And our goal initially was to combine dance hall and electro music and to have this super mashup 
Um, that was really a, quite a defense. Yeah. Concept yeah. And, you know, it's Major Lazer, I think, came out like a year or two later. But that's no surprise because the Diplo rhythm, which was one of my favorite rhythms he's ever made, was like really him combining electro with like, I think Spice Spice was on that track. Vibes was on that track. That's right. And he also had Vibes Cartel and the Brazilian, a couple of Brazilian people too from the Baile Funk. Yes. Um, who I forget who they yeah, were. but bad. Right. So... But at that time, it was still relatively new to be kind of combining these oh, yeah. these genres in a in a New York City nightclub. But luckily, at that time, that that type of mosh pit crowd was so common, and so you'd have everyone from like the old Rasta heads to the skaters to like the posh meatpacking people to us, you know. And um, it was just a wild night, and we would play all different genres. And and since then, we've been very dedicated to the hybrid sound of the diaspora, you know, and like really experimenting. And now that we've produced original music for a couple of years, we have a track with Daneo, we have a track with The Wave, we have a track with dancehall artist Popeye Caution, and we have a lot in the works as well. And all those songs are really dedicated to that mashup culture. Mm. You know, how, how many influences can we combine in one so that we almost make a brand new sound? Nothing is new under the sun. But if you can have something that speaks to you, it can still be original, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's, it's, it's also interesting, you know, you talk about those, those genres, Afrobeats, dancehall, and reggaeton, mm -hmm. and the dembo rhythm, mm -hmm. that's consistent through all of them. <laughs> yeah. And that seems to be like a common thing now, it's pop music, mm -hmm. right? You've got big like Justin Bieber on a Dembo rhythm. Right, right. It's like, isn't that, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> I mean, a part of me is like, well, of course. Yeah. Doesn't that speak to your root chakra? Can't you feel it in your <laughs> gut, you know? Um, doesn't it do to you what it's done to me since I was a kid? Um, and consistently, though, even this year, mm -hmm. we've got Taki Taki and, I mean, and lots Bro, of... Bro, I must have had Taki Taki on repeat for like two days, which is what happens. But that's something with like Azuna's nasally voice and how perfect it matches these beats. I mean, it's just like it, it's a it's a perfect match. But um, but yeah, and these are some of the biggest songs in the world. And I think that mainstream music was catching wind to this like a couple of years ago. Um, but I always get into the conversation of like, well you know, is it appropriation or is it like good because it's exposure and it's like opening people's minds to different rhythms. And that's an age old debate as well that I don't necessarily have the answer to. But how does it make, I mean, you've obviously been there very, very early on since 2008 with Electric Panani. How right. does that make you feel? Do you feel like that was something, I mean, I know that Nada, not Dave Nada was doing something. Oh my God, love Dave. Yeah. Mumbaton. Oh my God. Mumbaton yeah. changed my life. Mumbaton changed my life. <laughs> he knows that too. We're, we're friends. Shout to his new label as well. Yeah. Hermanito label. Okay. Yeah. Shout out Dave Nada. Yeah. He's yeah, pioneer. Yeah. And so it was, cause that was around a similar time, right? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So you guys, I mean, you must've felt some, some sort of like ownership of that or a, a contribution to that and see, to see it fruition into what it's become must feel kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I think it feels, um, I think you got to be careful with like ownership. Sure. And your ego, because 
like I like the shit we were doing in 2008, 2009 when like Spank Rock and Ninja Sonic were like the you know the first like blipsters you know what I mean like they were making it cool for black men and women in the hood to be punk Mm. and not that that hasn't happened for for decades we talk about the band called death in Detroit and Mm. great documentary on them so incredible yeah um but at least like in Brooklyn at that time at, at, at all of these parties it was like young black and brown kids who were just mosh pitting and crowd surfing and and being punk as hell and um and then you look at that influence and and how it's changed and it's kind of like um i was watching uh the red bull documentary about hip-hop in asia 88 rising okay and i was thinking about this concept of ownership and how we get so attached to ownership in our cultural identity right and for some that there's good reason because people will take those elements, add them to their repertoire and sell those, you know? And that's kind of been happening since the beginning of civilization, if you wanna really get into it and talk about colonization and whatnot. But when we talk about these cultures that have such heavy identities, mainly for black and brown people around the world, um, and how do we celebrate them appropriately uh, versus when people take those elements and make money off of it. So to circle back to like uh, a pop hit with Justin Bieber, you know, and his hit goes off. But then what about the artists who are making this type of music every day? Um, I try not to get caught up in, in ideas of like, well, we started this or you started this. Or that's your thing because I feel like those who know, know. Yeah. And you don't own anything especially with art like you make it and you release it Mm. and that's it you really don't own anything like in this lifetime you know what i'm saying like you own your choices and how you react that's about it but you don't you know like yeah you can copyright and patent things and then you technically own it but in terms of like art it it gets really tricky because i think the moment you um the moment that you want want everyone to know that you started it or you owned it or is the moment that you hinder yourself you kind of have to be free with it right you know what i mean but but at the same time um especially living in new york for so long like we give credit where credit is due that's a really good point yeah and i think it's to that point um do you think what you guys did and and that that com- combination of sounds would could that happen anywhere but New York? I mean, it feels like New York has a certain melting it, pot. It probably was happening everywhere. You know, like as soon as some people caught wind of us, especially with our mixtapes, we would make one mixtape a year of like our favorite songs and not a playlist, like a mixtape, like mm-hmm. with interludes and sound bites <laughs> and like um, hip hop stuff, all that fun shit. And that's when people around the world started finding out about us. And so there'd be like a Berlin party where they're like, hey, like we're doing something really similar. You guys got to come play. Or in South Korea, like, hey, we're doing something kind of similar. You got to come play. Like, or hipsters don't dance in London. They're like, we're, we're doing this party as well, like with the heat wave. And, you know, like you guys should really come play. And I, 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 think, it, I think it actually was happening around the world. Um, it's just that Melo and I are like, you know, we're loud about it. We're very loud about it. Um, 
because we're East Coasters. <laughs> um, but but I think that we've met so many amazing people throughout the world who who share the same interests and share the same influences. So uh, I don't even think that we did start it. I just think that we were a moment in time that offered the platform and, and the community and the connections. And now we've evolved into a music duo versus just a DJ duo. And so now when we produce original music, uh, we're kind of bringing all of that into our own sound and, and giving you examples of what's in our brain and hoping that those songs go super far and wide. And we, can we expect a, a release, upcoming release anytime soon? I don't know. Mel's about to have a baby. So I'm about to be an auntie. Shout to Corey. Um, and uh, I think I think maybe in the fall. But I'm trying to give him some space because it's such an awesome time, you mm. know. And it's like I don't ever want people to miss out on those moments and overwork themselves and, and get trapped in that artist freelancer life. Well, I have to always, you know, it's like actually – you need a balance, you know what I mean? And I think it's important to have friends and partners around you that can support that, you know? Very much. And, but you guys are also doing a, a playlist for a regular updated mm -hmm. playlist? Um, it's called World Index. It's on Spotify. And that we've devoted our time to is like we come up with a playlist every single month. And I know that that sounds simple but for us for the fact that for seven years we made a mixtape every year and like those final songs those final 30 songs were like they had to represent us you know in the best way like that's kind of how we feel about these playlists and now we do these contests where each month we accept submissions uh from different artists and say hey submit your music if it's on spotify and we we like it a lot you'll be our contest winner and that like, I was like, I don't know who's going to really, like, hear us on Spotify or hear our playlist, but that, like, we get so many submissions every single month, and we, it's been happening now for, like, a year, I think. Um, and I think the coolest part about that is, like, okay, these artists and producers, they get us. They get exactly what we're talking about because they send us genre-bending shit all the time, you know? And I think that in in of, in of itself is such a testament to I guess the work that we've put out the vibes that we've put out the music we've put out and so you kind of understand the essence of where we're coming from mm. I, I, was, I just want to jump back a couple steps here and talk yeah, a bit about I just I, <laughs> you know I just know my tangents are everywhere and here's the thing when I listen back to myself and I I'm always like why didn't you just answer the question that they asked and you went on four tangents so I take, love it. take it back. I love it. Um, Pull up the tune. But so you, so you've got, we went from Philly to Boston, and then Boston to New York, and New York, like what what did, what change was that like? You know, from Boston, you finished your your major, and then you moved to New York. Yeah. And then the influence of New York, like when did that come in? Because you, you mm. it sounds like to me, mm -hmm. if I'm if I'm getting the chronological, yeah, right. We mm -hmm. got R and B, neo soul, Jasmine. And then we moved to New York, and then it got really, uh, you got into Electric Panani and started making that uh, mm -hmm. whole sound. So was there, a, was did New York bring that out, or was that something you already had from, you know, when you were younger? I'll connect some dots. Um, I was always moving to New York. I don't think I told, I still haven't told my mom this. And I'm like, when are you going to tell her? But I don't like to worry her. But when I was 16, and the day I got my license, I drove that little Honda 
to New York City from Philly, and I drove back. And I drove down the financial district, and that's the day I learned how to be a Grand Theft Auto New York driver. (laughs) And I wasn't with anyone, I didn't tell anyone, but New York was such a symbol to me, and it was always New York City. And it always expressed like ultimate freedom to me. I was always trying to be in the center of like where everything was happening. If it wasn't for Emerson and it being such a dope college, so liberal with amazing facilities and that radio station, I would have gone to NYU. Mm. Those are the only two colleges I applied to. So I was raised on strictly classic soul. James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett from my mom. Um, My dad is from Indonesia, Mm. but he's super musical. He could sing, he could dance. He's the shit. Um, And then... Neo soul and underground hip hop really shaped me as a teenager. But that's also when I got a hold of a Vin Rock and Shortcut dancehall mixtape. Oh, was that? Um, oh, Which I recently like, like tweeted or Instagrammed him. And I was like, well, thank you. And he's yeah. like, yeah. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, I, I know, I think I know the one you're talking about was a triple threat. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. like red and green cover. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like, the, well, that and Buju's, um, Buju's uh, album were the first times that I had discovered reggae and dance all on my own. I've heard I had heard Bob Marley before, but wasn't you know didn't grow up in any Caribbean communities. Wasn't friends with any you know Jamaicans until I really got to New York. And but there was something there was something about reggae and dancehall, even at a, as a fifteen year old that was like oh. This feels like me, you know? And then when I go to college, I spin underground hip hop for three years and then I do R&B and soul. But at that same time, you know, we were we were managing um, the reggae show. And so I knew every song, every song, like <laughs> Roots Rock, uh, Dub, Dance Hall, Raga, I mean, and we had every artist come through, but there was something about dance hall and reggae that I just had known in my soul from before I came to this earth. That's all I, who knows? I may have been an old Jamaican woman in a past lifetime. That's what my friends like to speculate, but who knows? Um, I just know I connected with it deeper than, than anything else. And so that's why once I got to New York, you know, I was DJing everything, but the reggae and dance hall was was uh, a priority. And Mello and I just kept getting booked to DJ together or, or getting booked to host stuff. And Rice and Peas was a party with DJ Gravy and Max Glazer. And I remember I like did their flyers. <laughs> I tried to do their flyers to make some money and like be at the party. Um, and Mike Rodon hosted, who's just one of the best like toasters, MCs on the mic, period. Max Glazer, Federation Sound? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah he was a huge influence, uh, you know, in terms of learning that New York scene, mm. you know? Because um, there's a connection, right? Jamaica and New York, like, kind of... Oh, all day. Yeah, there's a big dance hall thing. Well, a lot of a lot of Jamaicans um, immigrated to Brooklyn, mm. you know? Just the same way um, a lot of Puerto Ricans live in Uptown. Mm. Um, the same way a lot of Jamaicans in the 50s and 60s migrated to Camden, London, the UK. Toronto, too. Toronto. So there's these there's these pockets in which people bring their culture in the same way like 
the same way most people immigrate. They're like, all right, we don't know shit about that country or that city. All we know is that we know three people in this one place. And that's where we're going to go. We're going to figure it out. <laughs> it's like my dad. It's the story of like all of a lot of our parents. You know what I mean? Like and that they bring the community up and they they have to because how else you going to move somewhere so far and and you're trying to make a better life and you just need one tiny connection to help you Mm. and what is that going to be okay we know one person it's in idaho i don't know what that is but we're just going to go you know they seem to be doing okay they seem to be doing okay um and so that's you know the jamaican community the caribbean community is so strong in brooklyn and, and new york and you really can't you know, at least at that time, and I'm pretty sure it's like that now, but I, I don't think you can really DJ a dance hall reggae set unless you really know what you're doing. Well, yeah. That was the pressure back then, too. Like, And that music moves really fast from, you know, the, the rhythms, the yeah, different versions. Like every day. And, yeah. Do you still, do you, do you find it hard to stay up on all those? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, at least from, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, like all the major artists were on every rhythm. Mm. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. And I think that like a lot of them who like really broke through, I mean, primarily like Sean Paul, um, it's hard to find them on a rhythm these days unless it's like a producer that they really fuck with Mm. that, you know, uh, or the, or just a, a beat that they really wanted to get on. And so now there's like so many new artists that I hear. Um, a lot of them are great. And it's just a lot of sifting. Who who are some of like the big, well, who's your some of your favorite artists that are Jamaican Ooh. reggae artists right now? I'm like, well, Coffee is number one. Mm. You could put the air horn behind this one. <laughs> I started being, I started going to events now and I'm like, pew, pew. <laughs> That's your new air horn? That's my new air horn. <laughs> People are like, who is this girl? Um, you know, coffee to me is like the savior of the universe. Um, so young, 17, right? Or 19, 19 now, okay. yeah. But she's just, she's got such a good head on her shoulders. Musically, she's like divine. And she's here to like, you know, really spread a message of love. And I am just, I haven't been um, this excited about an artist, I think, in Jamaica since like Damian Marley. Like I get excited about a lot of artists, but in terms of like, hey, can I see you really like changing the stereotypes for black and brown people around the world? Great. <laughs> you know, yeah. like how positive can you keep it and still get everyone in the club singing your music? Word, because that's not easy. Wow. Yeah. And it's not popular. Um, so coffee, um, man, I mean, there's like, there's the there's the classics, but in terms of like I love all the females. I love Spice, um, Tifa, I love I still love Lady Saw, um, Tamika Marshall, she's from Guyana, she's awesome. Angela Hunt, Soka artist, I love. And then there's like the gully artist like Alkaline. <laughs> Who I love. Crazy voice. Yeah. yeah. He's also got that nasal. He's got that Azuna nasal thing working for him. Um, so, yeah, that's just a few. And and Mixed Pack Records also in, in New York. Do you? Drayskull. Drayskull, yeah. Drayskull, um, Jubilee, uh, It's the Large, you know, like th- that's all family as well. And Drayskull um, is another 
really legendary dance hall producer, but also one of these people who's like bridged the gap. Like Max Dreskel, they've they've been able to be in this scene for so long and they've they've been that bridge, you know, which a lot of times I think is tough because I think with a lot of other countries, when people try to come in and like, you know, take a photo in some cool neighborhood and um but are they really like trying to contribute to the to the people who live there? Are they really trying to connect dots so that people can have exposure in the states? And I think that those two guys have done such a great job mm. in being that bridge. Yeah, I mean, I was I'm a big fan of that Popcon. Oh yeah, album. Um, mm-hmm. And he just got signed to OVO and stuff. But right, it's a great thing that I felt like Dre Skull must have. He seemed like he was working really hard with him and Vibes. Mm-hmm. Bringing the bringing him to like the U.S. kind of giving a bit of exposure to them, right? Yeah, for a long time, Vibes is still uh, locked up at the moment, but he's still putting out music. So I don't know how they do that. I think he's got. I think he records a lot of it over the phone, mm. um, and they they work out the sound. And I, but I do not do not quote me on that because I'm not there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not receiving these vocals. It would be nice to get, you know, a verse in my email, but it um, hasn't happened yet. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so um, when you moved to New York and you started at Lecture Punani, did you, you were also involved with a TV show, is that correct? Yeah, so I was also always hosting, whether it was on air or, uh, you know, on TV, camera stuff, behind the camera behind the camera on camera like this <laughs> and at the time MTV World had asked me to host for them and do some artist to watch interviews and at the time I was touring a lot internationally and I was like so influenced by Anthony Bourdain as a lot of us are for many different reasons and at that time I had pitched to MTV World and I was like okay uh you know I'm traveling like here here and here why don't we do a show it's like a DJ culture travel show and they said yes and we shot uh, a couple episodes, one in Singapore, one in Montreal, one in Paris, where we really got to, uh, like, yes, I was DJing, and so you got to watch me DJ at whatever club or party, but I also was linking up with, like, a local artist, and they would bring me to their favorite restaurant and, like, their favorite place to get vintage clothes, and we were getting a real inside look into these subcultures that I'm always talking about or that I'm always interested in finding out about. And the things that like a lot of us DJs do naturally, but on the low, I, I wanted to make a, a show about that and, and have you get like this inside underground look to different scenes around the world. So, and that was something that I, I truly loved and, and I continue to do in, in different ways. So was that did that come out of Electric Panani like you guys touring that kind of thing or That was just me. Just you, yeah. Yeah, like I was I was DJing. We were DJing internationally as well, but I was also DJing a bunch around the world and it just seemed like a great fit and it was at the time. What were some of the like the highlights of traveling? The places that you you felt a real connection to or you felt something special about? I think um, Singapore was wild, like wild. I think in a lot of other places in the world, people celebrate being very weird mm. and experimental. The hype, the Hollywoodness, it's not, at least I'm not exposed to really those different scenes. Like for a super Western metropolitan city, of course, you're going to find stuff like that. But um I think a lot of people are very happy in these underground <laughs> like parties and just doing weird, wild shit. Um, 
What kind of? Just the genre bending that I'm talking about. And like, you'll be in the middle of Shanghai at this cement cave. This is where we DJed at one point, you know? And the DJs are just mixing garage, dancehall, dembo, hip hop, stuff that you're like, I didn't really know you knew about this. You know what I mean? Like, and that to me is just so fascinating. Mm. Or they're adding like another element to it that I've never heard and that I know like that's, that's like the in real life form of digging in the crates. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you see how connected we all are. You're like, oh, okay, you do the same nerdy shit that I do. <laughs> this is wonderful. You know, like we're gonna be friends. Um, and it also, again, is a testament to the power of music. And like you could completely disagree on everything else, right? But if you like that same song, there's that one point that brings you together where you have that connection. You're friends for that that moment on the dance floor. You at least see each other as equals mm. in that very second. And that has to be a catalyst for everything else because in this divisive culture that we're in right now, it I don't know what it's going to take for a lot of us to sit down and truly listen to each other and understand each other. And music, again, has always been that like secret gateway drug that allows you to just completely open up no matter who you're around. Okay, this is going to be a bit of a left field comment. Let's do it. What's what do you think of like Little Nas X? Um, I don't, man. I guess I haven't done like enough research on Little Nas X. But just the song. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. The Old okay. Town Road. I really like the video. I, mean, I think the video is uh, smart. The newer one. I know there was like an original one. I actually haven't seen the. Oh, okay, either. the one, the one with Billy Ray Cyrus. Okay. Where he like wakes up in the hood and they're like, "Who is this?" And he's on the horse. I'm all for it. You know, and I, it's funny, I was, I was watching this video about like the original cowboys in the U.S. were black because I think someone was making a comment, even though everybody makes a comment from every direction, but they were talking about like, oh, cultural appropriation of the cowboys. And Serious? Yeah. I mean, it's the internet. They're nope. going to, they're going to make a point for anything. And, you know, that's totally invalid and false. Um, yeah. Cause I was, I, we were in Houston like, like two months ago mm-hmm. and there was, we went to screwed up records and tapes, and there were, mm-hmm. ca- there were cowboys and there were African American cowboys. Yeah, there's cowboys in in uh, Compton. Yeah, is there? Yeah. Wow. A lot of people that have um, horses, farm areas, um, and even just the history of America. Like, I'm for it. Is there something that you were like thinking of that you wanted to ask me? Like, well, do I, I like the song? Yeah. Or... I mean, do you like the song? I think the song is cute. Yeah, it's fun, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's more, I guess, to your point mm-hmm. um, of here we have a song that essentially crosses over. I mean, yeah. it's like the biggest song True. right now. Yeah, yeah. But and the, the significance of that kind of, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. here's a song that, and it, you know, was in the country charts. They took it off, which is which is very sad and weird. It was, it was number one in the country charts. I don't and know if then, it was number one, but I know they, they mm-hmm. did, they're like, we don't want to put this in the country charts. It's an R&B song or a rap song. Oh, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was a lot of, um, and that's when Billy Cyrus jumped on the remix because mm-hmm. he was like, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm for this or whatever. Oh, I wonder if Miley had that convo with Pops or if he found that out on his own. Well, yeah, I mean, that's another conversation because uh-huh. Miley did the whole thing and she got very successful with Mike Will. and, and Right, the, right. But, but I think it, to your point was was uh, well. Here's a song that can essentially bring people together and right. be like, hey, we all like this song, you know. A hundred percent. Let's just vibe, 
and maybe. Yeah, and I think that sometimes I have to also get out of my head, which is like always deep in the world of injustice and how do we fight against that um, and kind of look at, you know, what you're saying, which is like, because I, I guess I'm always like, all right, well, this person is saying that and I got to defend that and this is my opinion. And But it's like, okay, let's look at this overall. Like we have a young black man who is making the number one country song in America with one of the biggest legends of country music co-signing him. Like that's beautiful. It's progress, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. And um, not to mention like, uh, <laughs> you know, Yeehaw, what is it? Yeehaw energy is like totally trending right now. Is it? A lot of fashion brands are doing like, you know, the whole cowboy cowgirl theme. Um, and so I think that that's a great example of people coming together under the sake of music uh, and it being infectious. And you're going to have people that have their opinions on it. That, uh, But at the same time, if it's number one in the country... And you have so many different people um, coming together. And, you know, country music, I think, is still like the number one selling music in is America, it? in North America. And why not? Why can't we tap into that? And why can't we do collaborations? And why does it have to be, you know, 95% white customers and listeners and concert goers? Like, where where is that... Um, where is that room for collaboration and evolution? And maybe this song is the beginning. Yeah. Well, I, and I and I do think that's going back to another thing you you kind of talked about is interesting. Is that yeah? That here's a guy who who has no real history with any other songs. He's just kind of come out of the blue, um, and he's been able to make a massive song. And and you look at a lot of artists that come from the United States, and they don't necessarily get the appreciation in the United States right away. And I'm not taking a shot at the US here. I'm just saying mm -hmm. it's funny how you look at somewhere like England, mm -hmm. which, you know, a place like England that, that adores US culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in a lot of ways, we'll sell it back to the US, <laughs> right. repackaged. Right, right. And that's been going on for years. Mm -hmm. like, but it's like, um, yeah, the, the England and Europe in a lot of ways seems yeah. to like, uh, you know, adopt it and early in a way. And then... I remember doing an interview. I had um, a podcast with Spotify called Ebb and Flow last year. And one of the people I interviewed was J.I.D. And he had just got back from touring Europe. Um, and he was just telling me, like, the amount of love and insanity that was there was, like, you know, doubled from the U.S. And it wasn't that he wasn't popular here and wasn't having crazy shows, but it was just on a whole another level. Um, and I think that... I think the appreciation for um, for R&B and soul in particular, especially if you want to talk England, there's yeah. something in the water there mm. with them. Like Kate Trinata, same thing, like huge, mm -hmm. massive there. Right. And then, you know, it's like, it's weird. And Garage is like this attempt at like almost Miami base. Mm. You know, maybe I'm taking a bit of leisure. That's probably, a bit, I'm probably going to get I see the connection. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, the purists in the comments, like, you don't know. <laughs> but even, but you know, even drum and bass, right? Like, For sure. I think there is like elements of, it's, it's a culture clash again, and it's something that's own and it's unique and it's theirs. Yeah. I'm not trying to, I don't want to offend anyone there with that, but mm -hmm. there's definitely like elements of hip hop and, and, and things like they're taking from, your West breakbeats. I mean, every genre is an evolution. Like Roots Reggae was trying to copy doo-wop. Right. Like Ska, they were trying to copy doo-wop. Wow. But they didn't get the one guitar note right. And so it was like, tika, tika, 
ticka, you know, like, and it became ska. Wow. Ska goes on to have a second wave and a third wave. Bands like No Doubt in Southern California skater culture relates to ska. Like Sublime. Sublime. Yeah. Let me not forget Sublime, you know. So um, we, we, we look at like, <laughs> we look at DJing, you know, and you've got uh, essentially three Caribbean men that start hip hop. <laughs> they start DJing in New York. and they're they're already toasting in Jamaica, mm. you know, like a DJ in Jamaica before it got to, you know, New York was somebody on the mic, like while playing a record, you know. And so Grand Grandmaster Flash decides that he wants to use the turntable as an instrument. He's experimenting like but he's also bringing the influences of his family and his upbringing. And he's also compiling it with everything that's happening in, in New York city at that time, which is crazy shit that unless you were there or your mom and dad were there, like you're never really going to know what that was like at the time, you know? So it's always an evolution of people like combining cultures. That's life. You know, that's humanity, which brings it all back to this music anthropology Mm. topic that we're saying. And so, um, Mumbatan, Dave Nada has to spin a quinceanera, you know? So he slows down reggaeton music to like a 108 BPM and says, oh, this sounds fly, you know? And then starts making music like that. And then Munchi starts making music like that. And he He's not from the U.S. Where is he from? I think he's from, he's from Europe. Narrowing that down, I want to guess... Mm, I don't know. I don't even want to guess. Let me not get it. Let me not get it wrong. But you know his remixes, and then there's this little baby Mumbaton wave, and wherever that goes, maybe that was the thing that really influenced this kind of like slower, um, dembo influenced syncopation. You know what I mean? And but all of these all of these things add to each other and cross pollinate. Cross pollinate. Great word. Mm. And then the more people create new music being influenced by all of this you get new genres and and on that on that the new genres uh, you touched on it really briefly but i really want to bring it back because afrobeats as you'd mentioned earlier is like exploding Mm -hmm. it's like it's another level um yeah like your your involvement with that with electric punani and and so forth like you guys you're kind of i mean you played with walshi fire last month as well walshi just released as a bang record yes which which is, is Every every song on that record has a uh, dancehall artist and a Afrobeat artist, right? Purposefully, yeah. So so, how do you feel about this this explosion of Afro Afro pop or Afro beats? Right. I mean, it's nothing new. It's just new to North America. Um, if you listen, if you listen to like uh, Afro beats from like the seventies, oh my god, <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's it's equivalent to like us listening to disco. You know what mm. I mean? And there's a lot of similarities. Um, but I, for one, am all about the culture clash and about bringing communities together and making it popular to be knowledgeable about different people. And if that's through music, if that's the vehicle, let's get it popping. But, um, but in general, like, I think that those collaborations are so important because without them, we're not really getting people to collaborate in other, in other conversations or other ways, you know? Mm. And and if you were to su- suggest a couple songs to somebody who wasn't familiar with an older Afrobeats 
artist or who would be your oh shit well just a couple mm, i don't even know if i uh, i don't think i have artists i just have songs that i've heard yeah that people like whose parents are from you know the diaspora from nigeria from ghana and they're like listen to this it's from the <laughs> 70s my dad used to play it i'm like this is amazing but i didn't like write down the record what, what about new afrobeats artists who are the, yeah. the best ones that that you Ugh. see right now well I guess the most well-known one would be Wizkid. Mr. Easy is up there. Burna Boy is really taken off, super taken off. There's this girl, Tennille, who's super sick. Shh, I don't, I don't remember which exact country she's from. Um, but Vogue just wrote a piece about her, which is really sick. Um, Santi, with his song Rapid Fire. Santi? Santi. Okay, not Santi Gold. No, but but S A N T I. Okay. So like half of Santi Gold, but not the actual <laughs> Santi Gold. Um, who else is super sick? Those are those are like the main ones that I think tour a lot. Um, oh, Yemi Alade, she's super dope. Yeah, those are like the main ones. And with your playlist, are you highlighting a lot of these artists? Like, oh yeah. yeah. So it's a good place to check them out. You're some of your. Yeah, because we try to have an array of like everything from like the newest in Afrobeats and dancehall, in jazz, in R and B, in hip hop. Kind of the way that we would DJ a set. Mm. We, you know, it could be anything from like a Burna Boy new record to a Little Dragon new record. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and with the with the playlist, you kind of you're you're kind of giving people an opportunity or providing like a. A, you know, a, I guess a runway for them to get some exposure. Um, do you do you feel that it's really important as a DJ or as you know, I don't really know how to how would you describe what you do? Is it because I I feel like you're much more than just a DJ. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's a big part of it, so that's fine. And I'm I'm proud to be called a DJ. <laughs> yeah. It was my dream at age 15, so it's all good. <laughs> um, but yeah, but how, like breaking new artists. Yeah, how, well, just and and just like kind of being a role model. Like I feel like. A lot of, I mean, just my 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 relationship with you is I've always seen you as so much more than just a DJ. You you know you do a bunch of other things, um, and I'd like to talk about them too. Um, mm-hmm. But you provide kind of like a role model to a lot of people, I I believe. Um, how important do you think that is in what you do as a DJ? Mm. I think I think everyone's prerogative is is very different, and I think that because I came from kind of like an activist background, I always cared about. Um, people and how they were going to connect and how they were going to treat each other. And that comes from my upbringing and that comes from falling in love with music. And it, it, it comes with, um, I don't know, having, having a sense of responsibility for, for humanity and for uh, my platform now. And, but it's what I've been doing since I was like 15 and 16. I've always been trying to, um, figure out the injustice and see how as a people we can come and solve it and music has always been the easiest route and also the most attractive to me Mm. Um, but that has always extended beyond just the music and it's extended to community and it's extended to um, how we educate each other and how we ride for each other and how we stand up for each other Um, that's always been my mo like I essentially went to college for it. And so uh, I think that that's 
been a piece of me maybe becoming a role model to others. Uh, then there's also the factor of being a woman in this industry. And now it's much more common. Um, but that was like the number one question I got asked in 2008, 2009. What is it like being a female in a male-dominated industry? And so I think that that also came with responsibility. Like, um, and learning the double standards early on and learning how I was going to gain respect the minute I walked into the room because I knew that everyone initially was going to be like, all right, well, they got a girl DJ. They just wanted like eye candy up here. And um, I go into like beast mode when I can feel that somebody thinks that and I always have something to prove. Um, but that's almost to really push the status quo and, um, and hopefully that makes it easier for other people you know, that come after me. So um, I think I'm lucky that it's, that it's caused some positive vibrations in the form of a role model. I think that that's uh, a blessing and a really fortunate thing. But I know that not everyone is on that wave and not everyone cares. Um, and I do think that we are in a time period where you really have to fucking care. Yeah. You know? And I've always been a bit of like a holistic hippie in terms of like environmentalism and politics and all of that shit, you know? And so whenever I get into a conversation about music, we're probably gonna dive into a deep conversation about humanity and what's right and how we can help people and each other. But now more than ever, like it's so necessary. Um, and if you're able to kind of just uh, live life without having these conversations, it means that you're just so privileged and so isolated and and that's not good right now you no, know yeah. um it's and it's going to not be good for you in the end either so it's going to make it harder i mean we have so much work to do and we have to do it really quickly um and it's going to take the masses to make these shifts possible so that a we can like survive as a species so climate change doesn't kill us but also so that we don't break out in like civil war which i feel like can happen if we're not you know using diplomatic ways from the local level to the to the federal level so world politics you know what i'm saying like the way we produce and manufacture items and this all connects. Totally. Yeah. I, I've, actually, one of the things that I noticed on you do on your on your Instagram, which I was really, I was pleased to learn about, and I learned a lot from, was actually your Sustainable Sundays. Oh, <laughs> I never know. Like, who cares about that? Well, yeah, it's really. It was really enlightening, <laughs> and I was like instantly drawn to it. I was like, oh shit, what can I learn? It's so funny because I'm I'm such a nerd. And I normally like only like nerds, you know, I only trust nerds. If you're a nerd, we're good. Um, but that, you know, I'm trying, I've always been about that, but I never really talked about it in my brand, you know. Um, and so now I'm trying to see how I can bridge the gap and make these conversations about sustainability cool to people who don't care at all. And like, that's a lot of people. <laughs> because they don't have to care yet, yeah. you know. Um it's but but if you go to a landfill or if you're studying this stuff and you see how much plastic is in the ocean, if you if you really look at like how when when climate change rises, the people that suffer are poor black and brown people around the world. And uh, and if we lift the environment up and we lift 
the poor people in the world up, as simple as that sentence is, we will all flourish immensely. Like you talk to a, a scientist, a politician, an economist, a nutritionist, like a doctor, they're gonna, they're gonna, you're gonna see the connection between like everything from the quality of our, of our environment to the quality of our bodies, to the quality of community, to the quality of income. All of that shit is connected. And so um, I wanted to at least just start an Insta story series every Sunday and just talk about one topic and make it like fun and goofy the way I am and put all my gifts in there. And, you know, but if I can just do one topic and if one person is just like, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, let me just let me like make sure I just recycle this glass and plastic today. Even if that happens, like, great. We, we have to start somewhere, you know, Um but I actually want to dive into that a lot more because I feel like it's always kind of been reserved for this like one type of crowd, you know what I mean? And it's not really cool. That's why I like um, Megan The Stallion, right? And she said, eco-friendly hottie, right? And I was like, bitch, we need to be besties. <laughs> and she's like doing a beach cleanup in a bikini and being and, and online saying like everybody come become an eco-friendly hottie and i'm like oh that's amazing like you know and so you know and i and i have friends that like work at farms or are vegan chefs in la and they're from the hood and like i want to i want to talk about that you know and we don't talk about food deserts like a food desert in a community is they is is that's for a reason like the accessibility to healthy food is not there for a reason and like and look at the Look at the um, how many people have to be uh, have poor health, have low access to health care, like it, low access to education. It's, it's all connected. And so uh, it's just time to be aware of it. But I, I really appreciate that you like my sustainability <laughs> Sundays because I really care well, and I want people to care. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> it says a lot, though. As opposed to just talking about it, you, you know, like mm-hmm. you're 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 actively doing something about it. I think, mm-hmm. and that's what I I kind of was trying to get at with being a role model is that mm-hmm. you have a platform. Or we we also have we all have access to social media and how we use it. Right. Because this is another thing I think it's really important topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. Is uh, you know you talk about the divisiveness yeah. that we're living in the climate that we are in right now, and social media it's played a role in that. Oh, for sure. But it's also the platform. It's also brought people together. <laughs> it's all, yeah, exactly. So I, I want to know how you feel about that. Like, do we use it for good, or is, you know, it can be used for both, right? It's quite a, it's a, it's a weapon in in some ways, it's, and it's also it's a, the wild, wild west, right? And it's uh, and you kind of get, uh, you attract what you put out. So unity and color is a um, global photography series and a movement and a platform that showcases solidarity for women's rights and equality. Started out as just one photo in January 2017, inauguration day is coming up. I'm thinking about Trump going into the office and Obama leaving the office and I'm like feeling sick to my stomach. And I use social media for uh, everything, for showing you what gigs I have to like what things I wanna support to societal messages to sustainability Sundays, um, everything, right? I, it's a very big form of my expression for my brand and, and for my, my personal beliefs. And so I wanted to just post a photo on that day that was going to make me feel better. That was like the, the premise. That's how it started? Yeah. Wow. So I'm like, all right, I want it to be a women's shoot. 
and I want us to all wear the same color gradient. So I'm researching like colors of older feminist movements of the divine feminine goddesses and da 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 da. And yellow and gold just come up over time a lot. And so I say, everybody wear yellow and gold. I invite 25 women and then 50 women showed up. And that photo, the power of that photo, I just had like this premonition the night before we posted it. And I was like, cause it was just called women's shoot. And I'm like, we got to give this a name. I need to make a website. What if other people want to do a shoot like this? I just had this like lightning moment. And so I stay up till six in the morning. I call my closest girlfriends. We come up with unity and color, make the website, drop it the next day. Within three, within a week, I had three different people from different cities saying, how do I do this in my city? And so then I didn't realize at the time, but I had devoted my life to like starting this nonprofit basically. Um, and I co-produce every shoot we've produced over 40 shoots worldwide so every we just launched jakarta indonesia tokyo japan we've done trinidad london berlin so many places in the u.s from new orleans to new york to san fran to um kansas you know like and it's it's taken off and it's it was an accident i didn't mean to start this whole movement but what I realized was, okay, when you see a photo of people and they look so fly and so stunning and they're just, the photography is top notch and everyone looks like they match and, and you've got people in there that are gay, that are disabled, that are trans, like that are 75, that are two years old. But you're like, wow, that shit looks fly. That little moment is representation. And it changes a person's mentality because all their prejudices, they don't even know what they're prejudiced about in that moment because they're looking at something that inspires them and that feels good. So that alone is, is like the essence of like, of unity and color. It's of showing you what intersectional representation really looks like. And it's grown so much. There's panels, exhibits, you mm -hmm. know, that I, and I produce all of it. Yeah, you've done a lot of them around around the. I, I saw the one recently you did in Seattle as well. Seattle, yep. Seattle was last year. Oh my bad. That's okay. Yeah. Yep. But if you scroll, we've done Hawaii. Um, I've done a lot of talks at different museums and different places, bringing in people together to talk about this whole intersection between like art, activism, and representation. So that's another thing that's on the on the um, you know. But that's a good use of social media for... Oh, right. Yeah. See, see, we are talking. <laughs> um, but that that experience, like, on social media, it attracts so many great organizations and great people. And that's how most people find out about the movement because they see the photo and they're like, I want to do this in my city. Let me hit them up. Let me look it up. And that's a great example of how social media can create communities that really support each other and that are super positive. It brings them all out to one on one cause. Yeah, and the way the algorithms work and the way people search, that's why it's kind of like whatever you put into it is yeah. what you're gonna get out of it. And if you're trying to look for trolling energy, you're gonna attract trolling energy, you know? And if you're gonna respond to every single crazy comment, you know what I mean? It's gonna turn into like an entertainment show for your, for your followers. So you kind of have to set the boundaries of how much usage you want to be on there and what type of content you want to put out and what you're going to, how much accessibility people are going to have to you. Yeah. But 
you know, it's it's still so new and untamed that there's no real rules or formula and we're kind of all learning as we go and we're all addicted to it because it literally is like instant stimulation every time. There's something new that you're going to see every time and then there's the idea of getting more likes every time and that is like as addictive, I think, as sugar. Oh, for sure. Smoking, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. On the social media topic, uh, you know, podcasts are also, I mean, we started doing these because there was a demand for doing them. And, mm-hmm. our, you know, our people want to listen to people talk about, you know, interesting things. Yeah. And that's great. It's what's great about this whole situation is that we've got someone like yourself who's a very talented DJ, Thanks. but also does all these other like aspects uh, of things that you're passionate about, which you obviously knew about when you were, you know, a very young yeah. person mm-hmm. and you went to school for it. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, do you do, you do pod, a podcast too? Is that correct? or The Spotify podcast. The Spotify podcast. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's another, you know, vehicle to for kind sure. of spread the, the positive message or in, inspire people. And, and, you know, I thank you for coming and talking about these, you know, very important things that, you know, you're passionate about uh, and, you know, can hopefully inspire people to, to learn about and, and be better at living. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, A, thanks for having me. You know, again, I love coming to the headquarters and just seeing all the new toys and technology that you guys have. But also, you know, Serato was such a big part of my life because when I was transitioning from DJing on the radio to DJing in the club, Serato had like just come out. And so I didn't have to, you know, bring records to the club. You know what I mean? And I could, I could, I don't know, just be a pioneer in this new digital wave but still honor the old school essence of DJing I kind of was like right in that middle you know and um I just appreciate everything you guys do for the DJ community and making it accessible for people to learn and to come and test things out and to just kind of meet more people that they can learn from and that they can connect with so yeah so thanks for you know thanks for having me and thanks for understanding my mission <laughs> no matter what platform or shape it takes well we hope we wish you the best and the most success with that jasmine thank you uh thanks again okay let's go dj <laughs> <laughs>